The following recording is a production of WUTZ 88.3 FM on the farm in Summertown, Tennessee. Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. A podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the mystic skeptic mind space. Welcome to the Mystic and the Skeptic. In this week's show, we are discussing mysticism with Jason Haxton, the owner of the, the book box, a wine box surrounded by mysterious events and an interesting background story. This item, which first appeared on eBay, became popular in the Hollywood blockbuster The Possession. Mr. Haxton is the director of the Museum of Osteopathic Medicine in Kirksville, Missouri, and has been interviewed by the Sci-Fi Channel, and his story has been featured on the Travel Channel and many other podcasts dealing with the supernatural. When I first heard about the movie, I was afraid that Jewish folklore was being exploited for cheap thrills. I saw the movie and was impressed with it since it was a serious take on Jewish version of demonology. So, uh, Mr. Haxton, please tell us about yourself and how you came across this object. Well, thanks so much, David. Um, interestingly, I wasn't really looking for this kind of an item, and I appreciate your um, sensitivity to the Jewish uh, population. Uh, I'll be honest, I didn't have a, a lot of knowledge of the Jewish population. I certainly uh, have gained a lot of, of knowledge and respect. And so um, I was pretty much minding my own business at my museum, which deals with uh, medical history, American medicine. And, of course, we certainly have human remains, bones, um, instruments uh, for medicine, but that can be pretty terrifying and gruesome. And um, it was one of our college students that was doing an internship that brought it to my attention that his roommate, in some curiosity of the unknown and paranormal, had purchased this uh, Jewish um, wine container, a box made for holding glasses and wine, but it had been altered to a degree that um, it was meant as a kind of a religious, uh, maybe even a prayer piece, and um, it was called the Dybbuk box. Um, and I certainly like all things history, so I, I was curious about uh, this item. I certainly, with its history that was told, uh, and I might give you a little more on that, was um, a little bit apprehensive about uh, coming into contact with an item that may or may not have some type of spiritual attachment. So then when you did come in contact with it, what were the supernatural things that you have experienced since obtaining the box? Well, and that was kind of the idea. Um, From the beginning, we had heard uh, that uh, initially it was all kind of fun and games. Let's get this supernatural thing, these college students, and we'll kind of tease people, play around with it. But then as um, injuries, uh, bleeding eyes, um, electronics going haywire, um, bug infestations, I mean massive, uh, a lack of uh, ability to sleep and restlessness, and then shadowy figures and physical health of choking and uh, hair falling out. Suddenly it wasn't such a fun thing anymore. And uh, hearing about this, it's like I, I was even more apprehensive about now. I don't really... Um, not sure I really want to have anything to do with this item, but um, a friend of mine who is an illusionist, uh, meaning that you you create the appearance of magic, he he wanted to do a show and create an, a demon effect. I said, well, um, 
he said, well, how would I actually convince an audience that I, I actually conjured something? I said, well, I've heard of this thing called a Dybbuk box. If you had this, it would come with this spiritual demonish-like thing, and therefore there would be the excuse for your magic. And he said, you mean this real thing exists? I said, well, yeah, but gee, uh, you know, the college kid that has it is having kind of some problems. He wants to get rid of it. I, I don't think we should dabble with that. Why don't we just kind of make one that looks like it and call it uh, a Dybbuk box? He goes, well, I I'm willing to do that if we can't get the real thing. And so he goes, why don't you negotiate and work towards getting the real thing, which I did, um, with the confidence that he said hey if anything goes wrong i'll take this item you don't have to worry well when things started getting um strange i started you know coughing up uh, strange materials uh, choking all the time breaking out in hives uh my eyes were uh, bloody uh as if somebody had been like you know damaging them um all kinds of electric and little flashes of lights and i too was seeing shadowy things and unusual amounts of cold where there was, uh, you know, ample heat um, coming out of the furnaces and stuff. So these things uh, led me to tell my friend, hey, I think it's time you took this Dybbuk box away and he wouldn't have anything to do with it. So I was now left with two things. I could do what everybody else did is pass it on um, or I could try to figure out what is this thing all about. And I, I chose to do the latter because I, I already felt that I'd heard about enough owners being harmed by it that it would be unethical to pass it on. And I, I was told, well, why don't you just destroy it? My fear is if there was some type of attachment to this thing, destroying access, burning it, might actually cause this thing to permanently reside with me or my family, and I certainly didn't want that. Did you go to the doctor? Did you talk to the people from the electric company? Did you look for natural explanations for all these phenomena? Or was it like, it must be the, the box? Yeah, you know, see, I'm not really a person that is really into the paranormal and spiritual aspects. So my first instinct was, there's got to be um, a natural explanation, a, a scientific reasoning for these things to happen. And I'll be honest, initially... My first instinct was when I started, you know, choking, my eyes were bloody, um, I, I was disoriented and, and not being able to sleep. Um, I thought, ah, and, and having horrible nightmares, which I'm, I'm not typically a person to, to dream like that. My assumption was this object is contaminated, whether it's been purposely or accidentally um, poisoned, that someone has done something to this. And that's what's causing everybody to get sick. And the most logical uh, explanation would be either uh, a heavy metal like uh, arsenic or cyanide. And that someone has actually coated this, perhaps, and in touching and then putting my hands to my mouth or eyes, I've, or even just leaching through the skin. You don't even have to do anything. Just handling it could leach these um, chemicals into your body. And I thought, well, that's what's happened is I've actually physically poisoned myself uh, because many artifacts actually use in the museum world um, cyanide and arsenic as a preservative. It keeps bugs off of, particularly in our museum, human remains and uh, nerves, uh, bones. 
by coating something with arsenic, you could basically, uh, you know, keep something from being damaged. Um, and it, it can have a preserving effect in that way. So I thought, well, that's what's happened. Somebody's actually coated this thing by accident or on purpose. So I, I, we have museum tests. It's very easy to do. Uh, you take a, a little bit of water and you spread it over the surface. Then you take a cotton swab or cotton um, um, Q-tip of sorts. You can basically then gather uh, residue. And then by testing it with chemicals, you can get a reaction that would tell you if there was anything um, of a heavy metal nature. I did this and was surprised to find that the only material on the box was um, sugar, sugar water. Sugar is a very hard, it doesn't decompose. It's a very also um, old way of, of coating something to protect it. So there was nothing that could be um, construed as being poisonous with this. So that baffled me more because I was sure the symptoms of arsenic, which would be all of the things I described, um, are very common to arsenic poisoning. But not having now the scientific reason for these things... Um, it really did become even more baffling to me. And I did go to see, uh, you, you <clears throat> asked a good question. Did I go and see doctors? And I did. And uh, they would do blood tests, <clears throat> do physicals. And they said, actually, your health is very, very good. Um, but I said, well, something's wrong. I've got tuberculosis. I, you know, I, I don't want to act like a hypochondriac, but, but I'm not well. I, I'm breaking out in hives and then they're going away uh, my eyes uh, have blood in them that's permanent. Um, something is wrong with me. It's like, no, your health is actually excellent. So this became even more baffling to me is that through all tests, I seemed to be physically well, but I knew internally whether it was psychosomatic or whatever was happening was coming and going in a manifestation that didn't register within the health or the physical realm of, of physical health was a problem. So um, I did do these things and basically remained ill. Um, and that's what made me think, well, then I need to figure out through maybe a spiritual realm, talking to Kabbalah uh, students, priests, um, rabbis, maybe they could help me unravel this mystery of this very definite Jewish artifact. My next question was going to be, have you turned to God or your faith tradition to help you deal with this phenomena? What was the first approach you took? And then what led you to go to experts in other fields of religious uh, perspective? Okay, well, I appreciate that. Well, and, and, and again, David, um, I find myself to be very spiritual. But as far as um, specific denomination, I've had a lot of exposure to, um, you know, a variety of faiths, whether it be... Um, the, the Amish, the Mennonites, um, um, Hindi. Uh, I was raised Methodist, so, you know, very traditional uh, Christianity. Um, didn't have a lot of exposure to the Jewish faith. Certainly knew some Jewish people. Um, and so, and even uh, looking around here, whether it be the Mormon faith, uh, basically uh, Islam, all these different things because of being at university is very familiar with, with a huge population of religions. And as I look at them all, I say, well, you know, I think I've myself more spiritual that I think everybody has a spirit. I think there is an afterlife. I, I do believe um, that, you know, if you do good it, and, and, and try to better yourselves, that that's the right path to stay on. But in this case, because this was specifically 
uh, Jewish-related item, uh, and I, 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 and I wanted to make sure. I, I took it to rabbis and said, "What is, what is your thought?" And they said, "Well, looking in this item did contain actually um, Hebrew writing, uh, a prayer on the back. Some of the artifacts had it actually even um, the word uh, shalom, which is a form of peace, uh, maybe in a peace that could only be achieved in death." When the rabbis looked at the actual writing, they said this was written by someone who knows Hebrew. It's very unlikely this would be somebody that would not be Jewish because it is, it is written correctly. And if you tried to copy it or emulate it, there'd be telltale signs. And actually, I went and took a course in the Hebrew language and uh, found that after uh, after doing that, I could very quickly recognize someone who knew the letters, knew the writing of the alphabet versus somebody who was just trying to make it look like the writing. So in this sense, nobody doubted this item was of Jewish origin. Those that certainly, uh, whoever, they also said this is not a typical Jewish item. It's, 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 it's Jewish in origin but it's not what we use. But it doesn't mean somebody didn't misconstrue um, their way of seeing their religion and create this thing. All religion people, you, you go to church, you hear things, and then how you internalize your faith may reflect something very personal that might not be really mainstream. You might even have a very unique uh, aspect of your own religion. And that's what their belief was, that whoever created this, we, we're sure they're Jewish. We're not sure where they get the idea to do this, um, but it's their interpretation. And ultimately, we were told this was a box to talk. This, this prayer box was a way of communicating with God, a way of, of, of gaining comfort, a way of focusing prayer, and that um, that's what the family ultimately, when we went back to who sold this? And, and, of course, as they said, well, the reason we sold this was it belonged to a family member, Grandma. When she died, the item was to be buried with her. However, the rabbi who was to perform the ceremonies said that, no, he didn't believe in burying material objects. That's not part of the Jewish faith, and they wouldn't do it. So, therefore, we had this strange piece created by Grandmother and know what nothing to do with it, so we just sold it. We just got rid of it. And though we didn't feel that was the right thing to do, we didn't know what else to do. And so that's actually how it left the Jewish community and became part of a very non-Jewish um, kind of element and more of a spiritual element. So. so when you first hear about the box, it sounds a lot like one of those ghost traps and Ghostbusters. So you believe that the original owners somehow contacted an evil force through a seance and trapped the demon. This is similar to the idea of the genie in the bottle and Middle Eastern myth with the jinn. Is that the ultimate source of what you think happened? Or was it a later situation that it was passed down through the family and then somehow the, the demon got connected to it or the spirit? Well, I appreciate that, David. I think that there was elements of trying to, as in all religious ceremonies, by leaving objects uh, very personal, very physical, whether it be hair, uh, which obviously ties you to a, a real person, coins, 
coins are great because you know they were minted and existed at the date that's on them. So when you have a coin, you know that it's lived since it was minted through all this time. So it's a very direct linear link in time to a place uh, and, and actually even a dimension in, in, in you know, the, the continuum of, of time moving. So the things that were in it, including the language, the Hebrew language, really did look like somebody was trying to control otherworldliness. Um, and whether they were successful or not, again, remember, in our physical world, we've got all the stuff we want. You know, we've got phones, we've got cars, we've got artwork, we've got paintings, uh, books, we've got things. But in a spiritual realm, you don't have, you know, physical things. And so the concept is, that if you create a space and you do a ritual to give physical things to a non-physical entity, um, it wants those things. And so, in essence, what traps it is its own perception of these are mine, I don't want to leave them. So that's what does the trapping. Is there really a physical trap? No. But is there kind of an emotional or mental trap? Yes. And they do this kind of interestingly with, you know, we can look at animals for this. When elephants are young, they rope them with a heavy rope to a tree. And when the little elephant gets to the end of the rope, it tugs with its leg, it can't get away, and it stops. As that little elephant grows up into a massive beast, you can still use just about a piece of kite string because in its mind, when it feels the end of the rope, it still perceives itself as a baby and it can't get away. Even though now that it could literally pull up the whole tree if it wanted to, in its mind, it still thinks it's tethered to the tree and it doesn't try to push the boundaries anymore. And so it's a, it's a, it's a legitimate question is, is the elephant really being tethered or is it mentally in a state of mind that thinks it's trapped when it really isn't? If it wanted to charge away, it could, but it doesn't know it can. And so these are kind of elements when you play with putting things in a box to trap a spirit. If you give a spirit things, will it stay to live with its things? And we see in human life, people will make decisions or they'll mentally trap themselves when, when they really aren't. They'll you know stay in a home with agoraphobia that the fear of going outside of something keeps them even though they could literally open the door and go out and nothing would happen, their mental state keeps them trapped, um, even though there's nothing physically that should be keeping them in the home. So it's kind of this way. When you trap a spirit, do you really trap a spirit? Or is there a perception of that? So I don't know if that explains it, but I, I want to tell you how I see it. So what's the actual origin? Because I've heard two different versions. One was that they had it in Poland and they used it and then in another one reported by Max Gross from the Jewish Daily Forward said that the person bought it in Spain. So is there conflicting ideas or have you been able to, to match them? Well, uh, the, the way it matches in the sense that the original was created to try to trap a spirit and it went wrong. And when it went wrong, basically it was the night of Crystal Knock. 
uh, lives were turned upside down. This was a program against the Jews that had never happened like this. I mean, they had things happen, but usually, you know, they break a few windows, they shove you around a little bit, you might get beat up, but then everything goes back to normal again the next day. In this case, is the first time of using concentration camp. I think about 33,000 Jews were put in a concentration. That never happened, uh, that kind of concentration camp concept. Um, I think 800 synagogues were burned to the ground. Thousands of businesses uh, destroyed. So this was a new way of things. And in the process, really, it was the beginning of the Holocaust. And so everything was fairly lost, including the original Dybbuk box. Who knows where it went? But when Havilah escaped, she bought this and basically tried to undo whatever it is they thought they'd done the night of uh, Kristallnacht, which would have been uh, November 9th, uh, 1938. So do you see why there was one, but it was lost? She recreated something to try to undo, and in essence recreated a spirit box, a prayer box, um, that could have that same power. Tell us about the ark that you created to protect you from the box, and then what are the actual uh, contents? I know you mentioned the the pennies. What else is inside? So there's uh, two locks of hair. There's um, a reddish uh, blonde lock. There's a dark black um, um, kind of piece, you know, grouping of hair. There's a a rose, uh, something from nature. There are the um, four pieces of granite that combine. Uh, they're rare granites. They're not from the United States. Um, that, um, if you're aware of granite, it actually uh, has quartz in it, and therefore, when you um, have granite, there's actually an energy source. I mean, you can run a watch off quartz, so you could hit a piece of granite, and more energy may actually leave then actually went in with the force. It's just because it can hold energy. So if you think of a battery, the battery could be the quartz, uh, which has also then the um, uh, Hebrew writing of shalom, which means peace. But you also then have to conceive that then the Hebrew language, um, the vibration, the use of the language, um, has an element of, of quantum physics because um, when we look at, and I'm not wanting to get too heavy here, but when we look at that vibration, that language creates, vision creates, um, you know, sound is all part of it. Um, the fact that physical things are actually seem solid because of the vibration, they're actually, the actual amount of material is pretty small, but when that material vibrates, it seems to be solid and holds together, which is why when we pull it apart at the smallest level, we get these atom bombs because Things do not want to be pulled apart. Um, so we can think of, of this quantum physics world uh, that the Hebrews were, uh, the Jewish population used in their Hebrew language was very aware of. So, um, so there's this quartz, which has this, again, energy in the language. The Shema, which is a prayer on the back of protection um, on the box, um, uh, there's a candlestick, obviously, uh, it's got uh, um, tentacles, which would be of the ocean. The ocean has always been a mystic. Um, we know more uh, probably about the universe and above the land than we actually know under the ocean. So there is a, a mystery to the sea and a mysticism of the sea. So this candlestick has these tentacles uh, of a creature of the sea. And then the candle itself, when lit, you know, with flame, you create a dimension 
uh, fire and, and the actual energy of fire. Um, it's kind of amazing that the whole world doesn't just explode uh, with fire. Uh, so there is this element of a, another dimension through flame. Uh, there's a brass cup, um, a kiddush cup, and alcohol is introduced. And whether you have alcohol in yourself or even near something um, religious, it has an effect on, on the atmosphere and the elements and the energy that's around. That alcohol carries an energy. Um, so I think that pretty much contains everything that's part of the Dybbuk box. The actual creating of an ark was a recommendation by both Kabbalah students and um, rabbis is that just as uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which held um, the stones uh, of um, basically uh, the Ten Commandments, the, the laws of God, when they broke, they were carried about in an Ark. The Ark was made of a wood of the Middle East, which is acacia. Acacia grows very slow. It's very... Um, drought resistant because of the desert it's almost impenetrable it's it's actually tougher than metal so it's fireproof it's waterproof it's bug proof because of of the conditions it grows under so when you wanted to create temples um in the ancient times you would use uh, the wood of acacia it's almost indestructible um so the ark of the covenant was to be this acacia wood lined in gold gold is a blessing to god it's a rare element and so um, the rabbis recommended that this religious item would best be contained in uh, this kind of wood, but gathered from one tree because of unity, line it with gold, put this thing in it, and then bury it, and the ground will draw the energy out of this thing eventually, and it will be at peace. And that's what the Jewish population does with amulets and little written um, mysticism pieces through Kabbalah. When you're done, you're to put them in a box in the synagogue, and when the box gets full, they take it out in the desert, they bury it, and it's done. Now, if somebody finds it decades later, supposedly the energy's gone, and you can do whatever you want with these little you know, amulets and such. In another interview I listened to, the original owner of the box, Kevin Mattis, spoke about many entities being trapped inside the box. Is there any evidence of this? And has anyone found out the name of the entity, like the passage in the New Testament when Jesus confronts a demon and his name is Legion or many in relation to many spirits? Right. Um, the thing that Kevin talks about is because of the word Kishhof, which um, has been interpreted as a jokester kind of spirit. But I, uh, Remember, this was pronounced by someone who heard Grandma talking, and um, she said, well, Grandma said that there's Kishaf in it. And it's like, okay, well, what's that? I don't know. And there's a Dybbuk. Well, what's a Dybbuk? Well, we don't really know. Um, the Dybbuk itself is a spirit that has unfinished business. So it is a human that tries to go on um, to the other world after life but for whatever reasons its deeds were such that it's not able to find peace so the spirit remains and through other people tries to undo whatever bad it might have done so that's kind of the element of what might be a dybbuk a kiss off i i think it what she really might have meant is that it's a dybbuk with kissamen 
And that actually is tokens. And we find tokens inside the Dybbuk box, the hair, the pennies, the stones. All that would be in ancient Hebrew, kissimum. And they would be used for magic, mysticism. And so I feel that I am more accurate in saying that because that's what the evidence seems to be versus just saying uh, it means maybe it means this and it's a jokester spirit. It's like, well, I don't see any physical evidence that supports that. And especially since everything was pronounced, um, you have to trust that what you heard was accurate. Even the word Dybbuk the first time was written with an I. Mostly you you see Dybbuk with a Y. But if you're phonetically writing out what you hear, um, D-I-B-B-U-K, Dybbuk. Well, in Hebrew, when I went to a rabbi, I said, well, is it Dybbuk with an I or is it Dybbuk with a Y? He goes, it doesn't matter. I said, what do you mean? He goes, there is no translation of the Hebrew language. So whatever you write, it doesn't matter. You know, you can write Dybbuk with an I. You can write write it with a Y. uh, You can write it with double E's. I don't, you know, um, because it is not what it is. It's 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 a a representation, and so a representation isn't accurate anyway. The word is as it is in the Hebrew language. This is why when we see the word Kabbalah, you can see it with a K, you can see it with a C, you can see it with a Q U. There is no translation of Kabbalah. So it doesn't matter how you write it. And you can write it with a K and a Q and a C all in the same paragraph because it doesn't matter. It's not correct no matter how you write it. It is an approximation. So how is one approximation better than another approximation? So all I'm saying is when Kevin says there's maybe two spirits, I I, I would beg to differ. And I've told him I beg to differ on that. I've gone back and done my research, and Kissimum is tokens in something, and there's tokens in this thing. Many rational Jewish scholars feel that superstition is a remnant of a more ancient animistic ideas and that it does not belong in traditional Judaism. However, there's a strong tradition from the Kabbalah and the Hasidic community of Eastern Europe in relation to possession. Have you debated any skeptics who feel that the events that surround the box are all psychological and based on suggestion up to this point? Well, you know, you bring up a good point about, you know, Judaism today versus Judaism of several hundred years ago. However, um, I was just most recently in Las Vegas talking to Rabbi Wine, and though he's a very contemporary, very modern, very young rabbi, um, he says that, you know, we believe these things can exist. We, we don't doubt him. We're not saying that this is, but we're saying we do believe it. Uh, and uh, therefore, um, it's possible. Uh, so even in the most modern context, there is that space to say there is the unknown, and, and we believe that this is very possible. Whether we believe this is the case here, I've never heard any rabbi willing to put themselves on the line and say yes or no, especially when they understand the full story of the Dybbuk box, most of them step back and go, this is of interest. Because the the Jewish faith believes there are no accidents. So everything has a purpose. And um, I remember talking to uh, one of the rabbis and saying, hey, why would a Methodist guy end up with a Jewish artifact why don't you guys have it? Why aren't you guys, you know, given this mystery? And the rabbi said, well, again, I don't believe there's an accident in you having it because you're not being Jewish. You will question everything about it. 
However, we are so comfortable with our faith, we are likely to overlook and miss things that you won't because you're not Jewish. But in working with us, we will be able to interpret those things. So it really will be a relationship of you with um, those of the Jewish faith. But we believe we would overlook things in the process of, of studying this. And so that was the explanation. He also said that we're all together. It's not the Jews and the non-Jews that picture us all in a boat. And we're all in this world together. And, and we have our little space in the boat. And as you sit in your little space in this boat, which might be the whole world, you can do whatever you want in your little seat in your space. However, if you choose to take out a drill and create a hole in your seat that basically sinks the boat, you have now affected everybody around you, and you do not have that permission. So within the means of us all being tied together, you have a, a responsibility in your space, but it is your space. Um, and so this is their way of explaining how we're all working together. We all affect each other. And, you know, this this is the way the world is, that, that it's not us and them. It really is everybody coming together and trying to make things right. So I don't know if that helps you explain why a Methodist guy would end up with a Jewish artifact and the rabbis and cabal and people are perfectly comfortable with that. Have you had a, a chance to counter some of the skeptics when it comes down to just spirituality in general? Because um, people from the outside would say, well, that's interesting for Jews and Christians or spiritual people. But when you're someone who does not believe in the supernatural, all this sounds kind of weird. So working in, a, in the scientific world, have you had a, a chance or any interest in addressing this from a from a different standpoint? And has anybody tried to stump you or try to dismiss your experiences? Well, and, and I guess what I'm saying is I'm open to that. I myself was trying to believe everything but spirituality on this because, again, that's why my first instinct and in my book was I've been poisoned. I work at a museum. It's very likely. It's easy to look at the scientific elements first. Because, but when you've basically processed everything that you can scientifically, then what are you left with? If, if, it, if it doesn't appear this, 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 then there's almost too much to say that there's nothing here. I mean, there, that's what I'm saying. But there's not enough evidence to, to basically point that conclusively here it is. But you can also equally say, but there's too many things, too many coincidences. Because I'm okay with a coincidence or two. But when they start building up in layers, it's like this... How many times can something that's one in a million happen with this item over and over and over again? You're starting to end up with way too many um, issues going on, including what the, the prayer to the box was about. And if you've read the book, I think that's the thing is people who, who go off on tangents and saying, well, this can't be, or you say this, or you say that. They're really not like you, which I'm very impressed with the amount of research that you've done on this item. You obviously are very serious about spirituality and trying to understand, you know, what's going on here. And I think you found an item that, you know, challenges you a little bit. And I, I appreciate how many interviews you've listened to. Uh, you, you mentioned one of the first interviews uh, with Max Gross. I almost forgot about that. But he really was the first person to contact me as a reporter um, for the Jewish magazine. Um, um, and 
So you've gone through a, quite a bit of material. Uh, and so when somebody wants to say, well, a skeptic, I'm okay with it. My job and my book says, look, this thing is really one of the most amazing spiritual things you're going to come across. Or it may just be nothing. And, and that's all it is. It's just plain and simply nothing. So I begin the, the chapter, first chapter of the book saying, really, it's going to be up to you to read through this book and then see if you you solidify your stance, whatever that might be. Or you may still stand in the middle and say, you know, I'm still not sure. It, it could fall one way or the other. And uh, I think I was open to spirituality, but I guess I wasn't such a spiritual person. I was probably more leaning to, um, and through the whole book, trying to debunk the book and the concept. That And every time I'd come across something, be like, ah, here it is. Finally nailed this. It, it is just somebody's wish this to have power but it, it it's nothing but um physical items and in the end it still is physical items but can something be imbued with with some kind of power and so i've come to see um people have come to this box and made wishes upon it and weirdly enough they're not the kind of wishes that really normally would come true i mean and yet they've they've been rewarded with getting what they want. However, I discovered that if you try to make a wish for yourself, it doesn't work so well. I mean, it still may come out. But uh, as always, when you give to someone else, you also end up with, I I think, a better um, possibility of things being really working out the best possible way that it can. And so I do see it as a form of a wish box. I think, as it was, it's, it's a way to spiritually focus and talk to a higher entity and uh, and get a response because what is a prayer but wishing for something you know I uh, please you know we're, we're in great need right now I, I would love to to not have to worry financially or please you know I have a child that's sick if they could just get better if we could get through this or please you know many prayers in many ways are are asking for things or, or like making wishes for some people who may be less spiritual but would still be doing the same thing. And so I, I do find it fascinating that this box appears to somehow connect to some energy, whether, again, it's through just science of vibration, but something happens, I think, when you interact with the materials. And the scientist told me, well, look, Jason, look, you you got you got copper, you got granite, you got... Um, this iron of this candlestick, you got this brass cup, you got fire, you've got really an electromagnet mix that's causing your illness, that's causing strange things like exploding, exploding light bulbs, shadowy figures. This is all can be explained scientifically as electromagnetic energy. And I said, okay, so what do you do with it? Well, you contain that, and the best way to ground it is to line this container um, with gold. And then you go to the, the Kabbalah and the rabbis and say, no, 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 this is spiritual. And spiritual, you need to contain it in, in holy wood and use gold because it is a blessing to God and then bury it and it'll draw the energy out. Well, you know what? The scientists are saying the exact same thing, only they're calling it electromagnet and they're calling it science. The religious are saying, no, this is spiritual, and yet how you deal with it is in the same way the scientists would deal with it, with gold and burying and containment. So my thought was, you know what? If I do this, if I put it in an ark of gold, 
I've I've done what both have said. So I don't care as long as the results end up good that things get back to normal. But I think it's fascinating that two different groups for two different reasons use the exact same method to contain what they call the Dybbuk box. And one was scientists and one was religious. I think it's fascinating. Has anybody actually been possessed by this uh, spirit and has anybody talked to it and asked it what, what it wants? And then if someone has uh, partaken of that, have they gone through the whole exorcist process in Judaism? I know it's complicated. There's a lot of Psalms that are written. Opinion of 10 uh, Jewish people and all this that could be done. We haven't gone to that extreme with it because things did kind of quiet. If you believe that indeed the Dybbuk is a spirit, um, you know, if we just take it at base level, we were told it's a Dybbuk box. We were told there's a Dybbuk. Um, there's stuff in it. Okay, maybe that's Kesemim or whatever. It doesn't matter. But the, the key thing is it's a Dybbuk. Well, if we go then to what Jewish people say, a Dybbuk is a human that lived on this earth, walked on this earth, did something horrible, died before they could make restitution, and therefore has come back to try in some way to make amends. So if we go at that level of a Dybbuk, then who could this Dybbuk be? Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure, David, if you've read enough to get to that point. And that is something that I've consistently, why I have the most comfort is, if it is a Dybbuk, um, the woman's prayer was to understand the Holocaust. How did it begin? And, and I guess, David, if I was asking you plain and simple, if you had to nail it to, you know, ground zero, where, where did it basically spring up from? If you had to name a person that could be the Dybbuk, this woman prays and creates this thing and talks to God and wants to know how it began. Why did it start? Why did six million people that were Jewish die, but there were gypsies and gays and blacks and all kinds of other people that were killed, uh, millions more. And so if you look to, Hitler did create laws that caused all this, but if you go back before then, Hitler actually was thrown in prison during his first rebellion. It was a failure. He got 200 of these kind of extreme, kind of paranormal kind of people, and he marched on the government, and eight of them were killed, and he got thrown into jail for eight years. And while he was in jail, he looked around and said, well, 200 crazy friends doesn't make a very good coup to take over the government. What is working? And he looks to the United States, and in the United States, he sees that we have laws on sterilization, immigration restriction, marriage restriction. These were all laws created in the 1920s by a man by the name of Harry Hamilton Laughlin. So if this woman's praying to the box to find out where did it all begin, and she's living in Portland, Oregon, and she lives to be 103, and she dies, and she says, when I'm dead, bury this thing with me because my prayer is done. But the family can't because the rabbi won't bury it with her. So now they throw her prayer box out into the world. And what they say is it set the thing off. The box was going to answer her prayer. So it ends up in Kirksville, Missouri. Now we have no synagogue. 
We have no Jewish population. We, we didn't during World War II, and we don't today. There might be a student or two. There might be a teacher or two. But there is nothing really Jewish about Kirksville. Never has been, isn't now. But there is a man who is basically agriculture. He's breeding animals, and he's preaching that you must kill off 10% because of the genetic code. There's always genetic uh, strains or, or, you know, uh, mutants uh, that basically you need to kill off 10%. And even though you've got 10 chickens and you think, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get money for all 10, that one that's not right will breed. And basically your whole flock will eventually become mediocre and it'll be worthless. So you must kill the 10% uh, in order to have a good stock. He writes to Charles Davenport, who is doing eugenics in Cold Spring Harbor, New York, and he says, my gosh, this brilliant young agricultural man, um, come be my assistant. And there he does research on humans. He takes chicken information and transfers it to humans and populations, and he starts doing research, sending it to Congress, and by 1924, we have the first sterilization law. By 2019-29, we have 31 states that say that we should be sterilizing people for epilepsy, genetic issues, blindness, deafness, uh, if they're orphans, um, uh, if they have any addictions. Uh, we have all these, uh, if they're not as bright as we think they should be, we're not going to kill them. You know, we're going to sterilize them. And we're going to restrict who comes to America. And we, we've had basically... Uh, hundreds of thousands of Jews coming. Suddenly, we cut off that avenue. We will only take 25,000 immigrants and basically no Jews. The Jews had nowhere to escape when Hitler started doing his, his evil. But let's go further. Marriage. We're going to prevent people from marrying each other. Hitler in jail looks to the United States in the 20s and says, that's what we need to do. We need to become a national government like the United States is becoming. And he adopts these laws verbatim. However, in the first year of sterilization laws and in, in the Nuremberg laws, they basically take care of 350,000. And here in, in America, Harry Laughlin is screaming in his eugenics magazines and stuff, Hitler is beating us at our game. We created these laws, and he's doing it right. He's going over there. He gets an honorary degree from Hitler, from Heidelberg, a medical degree. He uh, basically is, is at their conferences. And Hitler is using the American laws of this man to do great evil. Now, by the time we figure this out in the United States, what's been happening for the last, you know, 15 years or so, it's too late. And so what we basically say is, how do we stop Harry? They take away his money for the eugenics program, and he comes back home to Kirksville, builds his mansion, but before he enjoys it, he becomes, at the age of 60, a latent epileptic. He is now the same diseased trash that needs to be sterilized based on laws he created. Now, we don't know what's wrong with Harry. He suffers for three years and dies of a massive heart attack January 1943. War goes on. Millions and millions have died. And finally, the war ends. We go to Europe, and we're going to try these Nazis, these Germans, for what they've done. 
and they do it in groups. They don't, they don't basically try you one at a time. There's too many. So we're basically bringing in whole groups of people. We bring in the judges and the lawyers, and we sit them in front of us and say, okay, you know these laws were harmful, killing, horrible things. What is your defense? And the defense of the whole group was a greater nation did this first. It's on record. Go to the Nuremberg Laws. Look at what happened at the trial of the judges and lawyers. A greater nation did these laws first. And with that, we could either throw them away for life and come back and do the same thing in the United States, or we could meter out a not as great punishment, and they shut up, and we changed the, the history so that we're not involved with that, and it's forgotten. But go online right now, type in Laughlin, L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N, and Hitler. That's all you have to do. And what I've just told you will tell you that if you wanted to know the beginning of these laws that did so much harm that Hitler used, it was a man who couldn't tell the difference between a chicken and a human. And then basically wrote laws that grew from those to Hitler's laws. Now, I don't know if you believe it or not. What is the chance of this crazy little box that was created answering this family prayer landing in the one spot you would never expect? Kirksville? But that's where this man began, and that's where he came back and died. So if there is a Dybbuk and you have unfinished business, could it be Harry? who is shining a light, because he got away with it. He died, he's in an unmarked grave in this town, and after 1943, he was forgotten. But now he's not being forgotten. And we're starting to take on the responsibility of what did we do to our fellow humankind that was horrible. You know those laws on sterilization stayed through the 60s? If a young girl was raped and and, and pregnant, she was considered promiscuous and sterilized. If a boy lost his parents, he was considered a risk growing up and sterilized. The only of the, of the 31 states that had these laws, Virginia apologized oh, three or four years ago, and North Carolina actually apologized, and all survivors got $50,000. Now, this does not take away never having a family, but they said at least we've done something. And go and look that up, because that's true, too. So I don't know if this helps, David, but what is the chance of this strange part of our history, this, this really sadness that most people have never even heard? But tonight, I, I'm not telling you a lie. That's what my research, and that's what I think there is a contentment when the Jewish population, and they don't even know about this, many of them, heard it for the first time through the Dybbuk box. And that's why they're somewhat in awe of, um, we don't know understand how things work, but there are no accidents. And perhaps this creation to tell this story was something that we needed. But I, I would have never guessed it. So I don't know. What do you think, David? That's a wonderful response. Um, in this show, we pride ourselves to going deeper than, than others because we know that ideas have consequences. Having a supernatural view of the world affects everything you do you sharing that history is very powerful because i i know of this from learning about medical bioethics and things like that so it's all there but 
sometimes it takes something as exciting as the Divic Box or the movie like The Possession to get people to dig deeper and learn from it. So I know before the show started, we talked about how, in a sense, you're famous and your story has brought about this movie, but challenge you that maybe you can suggest um, going deep on the sequel and actually addressing some of these issues because as much as someone wants to uh, be scared or entertained in a film, sometimes film is the, the greatest way to address issues that happened in the past and that could happen in the future. I think Americans have become very complacent and they don't think about these things. They don't think about how some of the policies, they might not be as gruesome as they were back in the 30s, but there's still some of the ramifications of them that are happening. And I think religious people are, are the easiest people to get dismissed and say, oh, well, they have paranoia. They think everybody's trying to get them. But sometimes religious, spiritual people are the ones who can be the conscience to the greater society and bring up important stuff that most people want to move on and forget about. So I really uh, applaud you for um, taking the opportunity to, to bring this up. And so it shows that you care about more things than just getting your story out. So I appreciate that. Well, David, I, I'm finishing up. You, you bring up a point that um, I bang my head trying to convince uh, these paranormal investigators and stuff that this truly is an amazing story. Um, and yet they were like, no, we, we want, we want to scream and run because there's a, you know, a, a, a mystic specter hanging around the box. I mean, that's all we want. We just want the, the screams and, 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 and the drama. And it's like, well, is there not enough drama in this story that, I mean, and, 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 and so I have to say, I'm very frustrated that I keep telling the story, but, but very often, it's like they negate that out of it. I have to say the History Channel did a very good job of nailing it. But I just did a show with um, with uh, 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 the Travel Channel uh, called um, Deadly Possessions. And the film crew's with me saying, why will you guys not? I, I said, let me tell you the story. And they said, okay, tell us the story. When it was done, they were like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. But I'll be perfectly honest with you. That's not what the man in charge of this production really wants. So don't worry. People may be driven to find the deeper story, even if we don't tell it. And it's like, but do you understand how frustrating that is for me? And the guy who was the producer says, I get it. And you've convinced me. I am more scared of this item than, and I've been shooting this show for the last eight years this thing probably has more power than anything else, at least in, in what's happened. And however it's told the story, I don't care. It's a crazy story, and I don't doubt it's true. But the sad thing is, the guy who's running the show doesn't want to tell that story. And that's just the way it is. But people may dig deeper in your story and get to what the real truth is. And so I appreciate that. When you say I'm a celebrity, I laughed. Most of the royalty money from the movie actually goes to orphans at the Betho Orphanage in Vietnam. My dad was a pilot. Horrible things happened to those people. They lost millions. We lost thousands. Don't really want to get into that too much, except for the fact I feel that there was uh, an opportunity to try to make amends um, for what my family has done. And so that's why the money goes to that area from the movies. The book itself, almost all the proceeds go 
basically to the university. It's a public interview university where I learned Hebrew and I support uh, the science and the experimentation. But it is the same university that basically hired Harry Laughlin to teach agriculture, Truman University. And so what I'm saying is I'm hoping that the money that goes from the book will, and telling this story, create people from that school that will go out and do better. Um, and so, and I keep telling Ramey, please read the book because in it, chapter 10, this is the story. This is why I can be at peace and not be afraid. Because why aren't you afraid of it? I put it away because I don't want people preying on it. I don't want to activate it. Um, but I'm not afraid of it. It's done what it was supposed to do. It answered the prayer and it's done. And the prayer is, you need to be careful. Animals and humans are two very different things. Animals are born knowing, and they have no fear of their death. They know their place. We humans are still learning and on a journey of, of growth, of spirituality. And that's why we cannot treat an animal and a human so insignificantly like each other. Uh, animals are here for us to, to care for, but we can also benefit from them. It's not the other way around. And so in that sense... You know, we are on a spiritual journey that animals are not on. And therefore, you know, I just hope people look at that. And um, I appreciate the time that you've given me because if I keep hammering away and I've got nothing to hide, maybe we will treat humans better and with more compassion so that when we are all together in the great beyond, we reconnect. Because if we are spiritual beings, whatever happens in this earth, as horrible as it is, once we're free of the physical bonds, we will all be equal. There will be no more beauty. There will be no physical pain. There will be no want. There will be no need for things. And so when we do come together, it will be interesting to see what we share as that experience from this human life. And um, so I, I'm glad that people want to know this story and hopefully maybe take a kinder uh, look at um, the world and what they're doing to try to be a little better person. And that's why I never fear talking about this. I think it's been an amazing experience, a very spiritual growing experience, but I'm not here to convince you anything. Um, and I just, again, thanks again, David, for your time tonight. Well, thank you. And uh, we like to build relationships with our guests and hopefully have you on a future show. Um, do you have any other interests? Uh, when I first saw your book, there was other books under it and I thought they were written by you, but it was just things that are similar uh, have you studied or researched any other paranormal stuff and the relation with science as our last question? You know, again, it's it's not really an area. <laughs> Weirdly enough, I've studied this object as it relates to the Jewish mysticism, and almost all mysticism and magic has come through the Jewish population. Um, and so that's why it's been a great study. I have literally nine um, nine linear feet of files because I took it very seriously. Another group that I've studied uh, and have befriended have been the Amish group. So sometime if you want to chit-chat about that population, because like the Jewish population, it is kind of closed. If you're not born into it, it's really hard to have an avenue to really be and understand it all. And it's also true of the Amish population. They don't evangelize. They don't typically bring people in. Uh, if you're not born into it, you really won't have that exposure, that experience. So maybe sometime we can give a chat about the Amish. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another episode of The Mystic and the Skeptic.
Show descriptions and content are available online on our Facebook page and on SoundCloud.com. We would like to thank the Independent Media Club at the farm for their continued support and Radio Free Nashville for their technical guidance and assistance. The opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect those of anyone but the person speaking. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions of What's Radio or The Farm.